Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's The Wonky Show. This week, we talk student mental health, the minister's letter, BME and HE, and stop. It's fresh as time. Plus, we have a great yes, but does it correlate and hidden history. It's all coming up. You know, if you're starting a new job, you wouldn't think that was going to be the best week of your life, would you? You'd, you'd know that it was going <laughs> which is so true. You know it was going to be a bit awkward um, and you weren't going to know people and you're going to have to, you know, do the work in that first week to, to get to know people and find your way around. And But you accept that because you know that's part of what you've got to do. And Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to pull vault over the walls of higher education policy. As usual, we have three fabulous guests. In Bristol, we have Student Experience Director at Unite Students, Jenny Shaw. Jenny, give us your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Rachel. My highlight of the week was listening to stu- two students, Ricky and Max, talking about their own student experience at the launch of our Insight Report earlier this week. And in York, we have HE Consultant and Guest Lecturer at the Education University of Hong Kong, Pete Quinn. Pete, what was your highlight of the week, please? My highlight of the week was I had, um, with social media and te- uh, kind of communication technology, I used to work out in... Um, East Africa in Tanzania um, many moons ago and I recently just got out of the blue a really nice uh, message from a a guy who was knee high to me when I first knew him out there and he's now a chicken farmer on the slopes of Kilimanjaro so it's wonderful to see him and and what he's become and how he's getting on so um, you know it was that was that was a kind of lovely high point of the week. And in Watford we have Wonky's associate editor Jim Dickinson. Jim give us your highlight of the week please. So I had a terrible Sunday so we at Carter's (laughs) Carter's Steam Fair came to Watford and I was looking forward to going on the ghost train, which, fact fans, is run by the kind of sooty man, Richard Cavell. But the ghost train wasn't there, so this was a disaster. But then, just as I got off the whirl around twist, uh, I got all the messages about the Gavin Williamson's letter. So, And at that point, I got excited again. So we'll come to that later. Right, we start this week with a new report, which was covered in The Independent and of Wonky, of course, which finds, once again, the percentage of students who consider that they have a mental health condition has risen from 12 to 17% since this derby was last run in 2016. The report was produced by United Students with Happy And Jenny, as you are from United Students, I think it makes sense for you to start us off on this one. So please give us an overview of this. Okay, so we had quite a, a broad aim for this research. We were looking at going to university in the first year experience, but we were really keen to, to get that proper lived experience of students themselves. So what it meant to them, how it felt, as well as to generate a load of data. Um, so we've got findings about just how diverse today's students are, um, how important student friendships are to pretty much every aspect of university life, and also um, how students see the future and why they're going to university. And I think this latter point, it, it was very interesting, slightly depressing, to be honest, because most of them do think their lives are going to be more challenging than those of their parents. They think it's going to be harder for them to do things like buy a house, get a job. Um, Their ambitions, surprisingly modest. So job satisfaction and financial stability are the the top kind of front of mind 
things for them uh, in just in terms of their their future in general and the majority think that going to university is the only way that they can get these things so there is a sense in which a degree is an insurance against an uncertain future rather than necessarily an investment to get back this graduate premium um, so that was quite interesting there is quite a lot in there about well-being and mental health um, and we have seen those rates rise. Um, but what we also saw, particularly in the qualitative research, was um, a real pragmatism among applicants and students and a, a real kind of drive towards managing this themselves. Um, so only half of them have told their university uh, about their mental health condition, if they have one. Um, and quite a diversity of approaches in terms of uh, how they feel about their mental health, what it means to them, how it sits with their identity and really what they want to do in terms of reaching out for help. So many of them happy to talk to friends. Some of them do want to, to go to university services, um, but others just want to try and manage it themselves as part of their growing independence. So it was quite a complex picture there. Yeah, so uh, this is a fantastic bit of research, um, really rich. And one of the things I'd recommend, so uh, what Jenny and her team have done on their website is also include a kind of interactive, you know, kind of DK style tableau to play with. And there's all sorts of really interesting things in there that there obviously wasn't space to cover in the narrative. I, I, I do think that one of the really interesting things that comes out is this uh, kind of sense of the extent to which uh, mental health care is co-produced. You know, lots of things in higher education depend on co-production, depend on students doing things and institutions doing things. And I worry that that kind of muddies, actually, the, the, the kind of flip side to that, which is the Norman Lamb thing earlier in the week, where one of the things he's is, is effectively saying is universities need to be held to account for the level and quality of support they offer and wherever you've got kind of co-production uh, in place uh, you've always got that tension between to what extent can you expect something from an institution and to what extent do you expect something personally and it's you know I don't want to belittle it but we're back to whose responsibility is it to get you fit if you join a gym is it the gym or is it you for putting the effort in and you know there's no doubt that some of the stats whilst uh, are you know you know problematic in context some of the stats that Norman Lamb produced this week uh, are worrying from a kind of lived experience point of view in terms of the kind of wait times that people have got on counselling and so on. Yeah, just to give the listeners a little context, um, if people didn't see, which I'm sure they did, but in case they didn't, Norman Lamb um, is a Lib Dem MP, released uh, details of an FRO request that he sent around the sector on mental health budgets and counselling and, and wait times and such, and um, he said he, that the figures were unacceptable. Uh, there's a great article by um, Chris Shelley, who works over at Greenwich on wonky.com, if you want to uh, catch up with that. Sorry, Pete, um, what were your thoughts on this? No, I, I, I've always liked the um, uh, reports and the, and the output that um, United students have done over the past few years. Very much along the same lines that Jim highlighted. I think there's a real great, rich voice that comes through. So it's not just kind of data. There's the, the, the real qualitative sense to it. I think it's it's a good counterpoint to, um, you know, the the... the the very uh, fixed view that, that Norman Lamb has. Um, I've got respect for Norman Lamb in highlighting uh, the mental health uh, challenges that we face um, as institutions, but actually nationally as a country. But um, I think it's a, a bit of a simplistic view. But I think um, what what is highlighted is that um, you, people in the, the common age group for study are um, very unlikely to seek support. Um, the, the main sources that, that younger people go to are their friends, 
uh, they go to digital sources or their intimate partners. And that gives you a real insight into to where the challenges lie here. And Jim's absolutely right about co-production. And there are some fantastic examples in universities of peer support. Student Minds are, are rolling out a program and there's some really good existing ones in places like Surrey and Oxford. And and that's a real critical um, job for universities to achieve is to enable that that supportive community and that supportive environment and that whole institutional approach. Um, so there is, it does sound, um, you know, when you've opened up, Jenny, with, about this report, that there's a kind of pessimistic feel. And societally, I think there is. But there's so much going on at a community level and a kind of mutual support level that really needs highlighting. And particularly around male students as well, there's some really good initiatives coming along, uh, like um, Don't Man Up and uh, Menfulness, which is coming through, which is, is starting to break the barrier for, for male students to start talking about mental illness, mental health and mental wellness, which is uh, is really key. Actually, Jenny, I'm going to bring, bring you back in on this. Um, I guess, what did you make of the Norman Lamb intervention, especially in the context of the, of the report that you've just produced? Yeah, I mean, I think he's obviously coming from a good place on this. I, I think he does care deeply about mental health and student mental health. But um I think my issue was with it was that, um, and it may be that just the way it was reported, but students are just kind of painted as passive actors in all of this. There's no sense of them having any agency at all. And as we've all been saying, you know, students are very proactive in this. They they are taking control or trying to take control for their, their own well-being and mental health. And they're choosing who they'll go to and choosing who they're going to disclose to. So that dimension was really missing, I think, from, from the way this is being talked about. And uh, there's a danger there of trying to, to you know, set something up or design a, a way that students are supposed to uh, respond without actually taking those views on. Uh, what we also found, actually, is that students who have used university services, which is not just those with a pre-existing condition, they were usually quite satisfied. Um, so 81% said that the quality of service met or exceeded their expectation. 75% said that even that waiting times met or exceeded their expectations. So it, it wasn't a bad um, experience when it comes to what students themselves were experiencing. And, and I think a little bit different to the picture that had been painted in the media. Yeah, I, I just think the focus on waiting times isn't the best um, because given the alternative, um, but IAP services can be up to you know six months wait to to get to see someone uh, in the community, but during that wait time, um, and it's usually prioritised on the on the basis of need or severity. There are all sorts of self help resources that students can dive into. There's peer support. There are alternatives that are given to students, so students aren't just told wait and there's the silence. It's usually wait, and in the meantime, here are some things that you can you can dip into yeah i do i do think the the findings in here about belonging are really really important and and i guess one of the things that i would say is that where we've got mainstream large providers that are sporting you know less than 50% satisfaction with i feel part of a community of staff and students in nss then there's definitely more work to be done on that kind of friendship and belonging thing and that comes through really clearly but i mean the other thing i'd say about the mental health stuff is uh, one, the, the kind of tone of the response from the sector to some extent has been, oh, God, we're trying our best. What about the NHS? Uh, and so on and so on. And all that is fine and, and, and makes lots of sense. But what I would say is it's, it, it must be the case that some providers are better than this at, than others. And we don't know how to measure that. 
and we don't know how a student might be able to hold their institution to account for not delivering the promised service. And those things do matter. It's complicated. It involves co-production. But if we want to try to get to a point where institutions are doing the right thing, we really do need to clarify what an institution's responsibility is around mental health. And I think that's not clear. Institutions do need to know how mentally healthy their students are. And very few institutions measure that. And then when institutions are making promises in prospectuses and open days about service, there has to be some sense that they have the capacity to follow through on that service. And you know what? If they can't, they should be highlighting it in terms of funding or funding priorities. And and that lack of kind of accountability, I think, for the stuff that is the responsibility of the institution remains a problem. Right. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Uh, hi, my name is Stuart Johnson. I'm director of the Career Service at the University of Bristol, uh, and I wrote an article or had an article published this week on do employment metrics measure up? Um, in the drafting of the article, I actually called it um, "Universities owe it to their students, not over focus on the employment metrics." But uh, clearly, that wasn't a very snappy title uh, for a blog. But it probably did encompass more about uh, the message I was trying to get across, and that's that there are risks associated with uh, focusing too hard uh, on the employment metrics, even uh, with the best of intentions. So the article summarises some of those uh, dangers: the fact that uh, it breaches short-termism, so it encourages uh, a, a kind of safety net approach and under-resources that are kind of long-term um, uh, and, and more, more more kind of genuine engagement throughout student ex- students' experience. My name is Martha Hall and I'm the Data and Compliance Manager at FutureWorks based in Manchester. This week I wrote an article on how higher education providers are helping students register to vote. Universities are now required by the Higher Education Research Act to work with their electrical registration officers to enable the registration of students. And this has been reconfirmed by the OFS in their conditions of registration for all providers. Registering to vote as an individual is quite quick and only requires a bit of personal data. Processes for universities to distribute the data to one or more electrical registration officers can be quite complex, require development of systems and can have delays to getting completed the process. The key issue is an election is coming up. Another aspect is how we prepare students for their responsibilities as voters and develop their political literacy. I'm discussing how the different providers are tackling these issues. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, just drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, the Secretary of State for Education, Gavin Williamson, has written a letter to the Office for Students outlining strategic advice and guidance from the government. Jim, you wrote a cracking article about this and the, about the contents of the letter. Um, and if you haven't already, I highly recommend the listeners go read that. So why don't you uh, kick us off on this one? Oh, blimey. So there's a lot in here. So I'll try and be quick. Um, in the olden days, we would get a letter from the Minister or the Secretary of State once a year. And there was a good reason for that. That's because a massive wedge of public money was tumbling into the sector. And so the letter was, hi, Hefke, here's how you should distribute the money. Here's the broad priorities. And then Hefke would design more complicated levers and so on. Um, now there's a regulator that that is interesting because the regulator is independent. And you would want it if, you, if it was the Office for Students to be directed by student priorities wouldn't you but (laughs) what's happened this year is we've had three of these letters there's almost a letter every week so another letter appeared as I say while I was at Carter Steam Fair on uh, Sunday ready for a kind of official launch on Monday and there's lots in there so first is 
Uh, lots of people have been speculating that maybe Subject Tef might not not might not get through the kind of Dame Shirley Pierce review and government response, but he's set out the kind of timetable for subject level Tef, so that's all very exciting and has set cats amongst pigeons. Um, on international students, he's basically charged OFS with coming up with a bunch of metrics uh, around international student integration and well-being and employability skills, and that certainly sets some cats amongst some uh, pigeons. And then there's a whole bunch of really interesting things on students as consumers, advertising, uh, uh, kind of recruitment practice, and value for money. And it's almost a kind of now album of everything a minister has said over the past two years, all now forming uh, urgent priorities for OFS. And I wonder uh, whether or not uh, OFS at this point, partly because of the kind of registration delays, has got the kind of capacity and wherewithal to deliver on all of the things that are in this kind of almost never-ending letter. Mm, Almost never-ending letter. Uh, Jenny, what did you make of the almost never-ending letter? Yes, some interesting things in there. I think that the um, support for international students is an interesting one. Um, And, you know, you you can find out more about the uh, international student non-academic experience on the the Tableau on our website. So there might be some interesting breakdowns there if we're looking for areas in, in which people can up their game if they want to do that. Um, I think the the reference to um, PQA was was interesting. Obviously, that's not a new thing. Um, I am just interested in the practicalities of that, actually, because uh, we see every year, you know, students who come through a clearing route, they've got a very short time to get their head round where they're going to be going physically to make their arrangements. And that seems like a, a kind of a different experience than those who have had a longer relationship with their university and have had time to to think through going to to that city and going to that university um and and actually that's that that's all going to be compressed potentially in in terms of pqa so um i think it's going to be maybe a question of balancing the um the the leveling the playing field perhaps for for certain groups of students against that that mad rush that there's going to be in a very short space of time where everyone suddenly knows where they're going and they're going to get themselves there and they're going to find somewhere to live and and actually they're they're in a very short space of time in an unfamiliar city i think that's maybe something that's going to be neglected Mm. um pete did you make it through the letter or did you make it yeah and and, well with the help of wonky obviously um but i i think you're welcome pete yeah, well, you know, loving your work, guys. What I um, take, I mean, the, the, the focus, and Jim highlighted a bit, is, is the kind of marketing bit. And I think this links to probably uh, two out of the three of our, our kind of core topics of our discussion today. But if you look at most prospectuses, which I understand students do to some extent, there is a smiley face usually on each page. And there is this idea that you will come and you will find Nirvana um, studying at a university. And I think what's missing is the exciting challenge of study, but that some of it will be tough. Some of it will, you know, bring elements of your character out that, that you've not been challenged on before. There are elements about, you know, feeling lonely as a student. And I think we really need to normalize that, not as a something we shouldn't talk about, but something that we should be upfront students encounter loneliness how can we counter that there's some great activities that you can get involved in here is societies to sorry pete jenny you want to come back here is you know here's sport oh. here's lots of other things that you can do when you're living and learning 
Um, so it's not just a case of, uh, you know, come study world-class excellence. I think they really need to put some meat on the bones of, of what student experience is, because it is, uh, it's, you know, it's fulfilling for, for your life ahead. And that's, that's the whole point. Yeah, just to say, I had the most amazing sense of deja vu reading the section on part-time and flexible provision, because uh, as far as I can recall, and it was about 10 or 12 years ago when I was working in the Lifelong Learning Networks, and there was a call for um, it, when, when there used to be lots of funding coming out for HEFKI, there was a call for projects around um, part-time and flexible provision and particularly uh, testing the waters on, on some of these accelerated degrees. And it was, as far as I can remember, almost word for word. So I think it feels like things go around full circle. Maybe I'm just getting old, but um, it was a, a, a very strong deja vu moment for me, that was. Every week, we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here is episode two of Hidden History of HE. Expanding our universities is one of those things that has been an issue all the way through the history. How do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that there comes a point where government needs to expand our universities uh, and think about how it wants to organise that? Now, less so in the market type system but when we had planning bodies how should we do that now the biggest set of expansion came straight after the second world war where um, they knew in advance that returning students were going to come back um, either they'd already gone off to war they'd been off into a variety of different occupations and they were going to want to have higher education the americans handled this through their uh, gi bill um, but we set about just expanding our universities and the interesting bit is that we started planning for this in act you know active way in 1943 so before we've even invaded Normandy, the British university sector is planning to have won the war and how it's going to cope with all the students who are going to come back. So excellent planning from the UGC. Um, and off it goes. It works out that actually it doesn't really need to expand the number of universities because most of the universities it's been funding have been really small all the way through the 30s. Um, again, if we think we have trouble now, try running a university through the Great Depression when most of the students have to pay their fees. So they've not expanded as much as they thought, so they were ready for them all to expand. The only difference is that um, the chair of the UGC, Walter Mobley, is persuaded uh, to let the University College of North Staffordshire start. And so A.D. Lindsay uh, persuades him that it would be a really good idea to set up a new kind of university. And Mobley is very concerned about um, how the war has gone, how it's impacted on universities, and he thinks we need new types of students. Uh, and so they're allowed to run a four-year course, predominantly residential um, uh, an opportunity to have a foundation course at the minute so it's time to do something different and they get going and everyone else starts to expand and then we go through the 50s just slowly upgrading universities so the university colleges become universities they all expand there's a bit of a backlash if you think about um, Kingsley Amis and Lucky Jim and his more means worse thing um, but generally this is the idea that we can continue by the end of the decade it's clear we need more universities they exceed to a bid from Sussex to set up a new university college at Brighton but then um, having got to that stage they have a pause and think it's probably worth having a think about setting up new types of universities and then starts this marvellous thing this bidding competition to have universities. Now, next up, we're talking. We are talking about BME issues in HE. But first, we wanted to let you know that Wonkfest is coming. Yes, now at a brand new venue, the most exciting event in the UK HE calendar is back for its third year. 
We are witnessing the most chaotic political moment in a generation. Now more than ever, we must understand how we fit into the wider world, how to make the case for our institutions, how to meet the needs of our many different communities and stakeholders, and how we prepare to tackle local, national and global challenges. At Wonkfest, we bring the sector together to tackle some of these issues and share the great challenge of navigating what lies ahead. We have two non-stop days of ideas, new thinking analysis and debate. You can choose what to focus on and build your own experience that will be the most valuable for your professional role and organisation. The sessions range from headline plenaries to masterclasses and from interactive workshops to fireside chats. You will never be too far away from a new idea or useful insight, old colleagues and many new ones yet to be made from different and unexpected parts of university life. With the abundance of interesting things to do and see, we honestly think it'll be the most valuable two days at the office you'll have all year. And do remember, if you're a Wonky Plus subscriber, your tickets are discounted. The past two years have sold out, so head to www.wonkfest.co.uk to book your tickets and find out more. And we cannot wait to see you all there. Next, this week, there were two meaningful additions to the discussion on BME issues in HE. There was a report into the barriers faced by black PhD students in obtaining research council funding produced by Leading Roots, an initiative to prepare the next generation of black academics. And also this week, HEPI published a series of essays entitled The White Elephant in the Room, Ideas for Reducing Racial Inequalities in Higher Education, which looked at BME issues in higher education. Pete, would you be so kind as to give us an overview of these, please? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I, I did. I have to say, I did get a bit of a deja vu feeling when I was reading both these um, resources. I have to say, the Leading Roots uh, resource was excellent in that it was really solid but very succinct. So it was really, um, really a pleasure to read, and it gave some really good actionable uh, recommendations. So Leading Roots uh, is based in UCL, but it had a lot of quite high impact um, input from people like the British Library, Sage Publishing, Welcome. Um, but really importantly, from an initiative uh, called the Ubelli Initiative, which is a, a social enterprise which represents um, members of the African diaspora, in um, mainly London-based, but, but really good to read. Um, some really stark statistics. Uh, the one that stuck out for me was um, UKRI funds nearly 20,000 studentships, uh, of which 1.2% uh, were awarded to black or black mixed students. And only 30 of those 19,000 plus studentships went to black Caribbean uh, scholars. So really, you know, tiny, tiny proportion. Uh, lots of uh, reasons why uh, in terms of biases, Eurocentric curriculum uh, and other negative impacts. And there was a real um, uh, raising awareness about how um, issues uh, are focused on like prior attainment, which are really difficult to, to match up for um, for BME uh, um, applicants. Um, there was a Russell Group bias as well when many of the, uh, the, you know, the potential scholars hadn't got a Russell Group background. And there was some really good advice on um, paid funded internships so that um, black scholars can generate that cultural capital uh, that's needed. So I was, I, I was really impressed with the Leading Roots um, report. The, the HEPI stuff was good, really good quality. Um, it's always good to see Carl and Powell's work there. But what stuck out for me along with her recommendations about the race equality charter and, and matching that with when um, when gender was um, needing focus and the Athena Swan became a, um, a, a requisite for getting research funding, um, there's a suggestion that that needs to be mirrored with the race equality charter. There's also a lot of really good stuff in, in the HEPI report about actually meaningfully funding initiatives. And, uh, you know, from a practitioner basis, uh, Sanchez Alashia um, made some really important points about you can spearhead it with um, 
a leading figure in the institution, but you've got to fund it for it to actually work and avoid tokenistic initiatives. Uh, I, mean, I mean, lots, uh, lots was fascinating. Um, the, I, th- I think Amate Doku's contribution, so former NUS vice president, uh, higher education's contribution was really interesting. There's, there is a fine line between involving students impacted by these sorts of issues uh, and reflecting on and acting on their lived experience and then over depending on their labor uh, in order to, you know, get into spaces that are, you know, uh, you, you know, exhausting and difficult, and you know, the, the the right money needs to be in there so that we don't, uh, you know, overuse people's kind of experiences uh, uh, too much when trying to solve these issues. The other one that I thought was great was uh, Shan Waring's piece in the Happy Stuff on leading difficult conversations about uh, race, and and you certainly get the sense that you know there are are lots of institutions where these sorts of issues are kind of buried in an equality and diversity committee and someone is sent from each faculty and department but it's actually conversations inside the you know the kind of academic departments and settings that really make the difference the the, the, the only other thing i was going to say that i thought was really interesting i, I mean obviously the um what are they called the the leading roots stuff was fascinating in terms of the number of fully funded phds the other thing i worry about is who gets picked and how recruitment and selection works for PGRs that teach because certainly anecdotally and I've been to lots of students unions this summer that that, that there seems to be a real lack of HR process and focus on that thing and unless we are getting those two really important pipeline moments right which is you know cutting your teeth doing some teaching and getting a fully funded PhD if we don't get those two things right we are going to go round and round in circles and never get this right in terms of having some you know quality black uh, and minority ethnic leaders uh, that, that that students can kind of visibly see inside their institutions. Mm. Well, I, I I think Please. this is a real call to action. I think both these reports are a real call to action because I could just imagine people listening to this podcast and saying, "Here we go again," and you know that kind of voice in the head saying, "Yes, but yes, but when when all these issues are raised, but what are we actually going to do about it?" Because we can champion them, we know what works because we're seeing it in business and in other sectors. What works in um, giving. Um, BME folk a chance to really uh, thrive and succeed and that's not just by senior leadership champion it's by allies it's by people throughout the organization enabling people to do well and removing these structural barriers and the biases and the implicit biases and the unconscious biases that that um, are faced by these communities and we we just need to think what are we actually going to do? Are we just going to wait another few years for another few reports to come out with data? Or are we actually going to do something about it? Because we need to. Diversity uh, is, is a hugely important area for if we want to be global, we want to be international, if we want to be successful. And just very quickly on that, I mean, I, I, I do think what's interesting is, you know, we basically work in an environment which has significant distributed leadership. Universities are autonomous, academics are autonomous, uh, and the culture in lots of institutions is, you know, departments are autonomous. And, and that, that, that means that, of course, you know, racism is a, is a problem in wider society, but, but, but the, 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 the counterpoint to all of that kind of academic autonomy is you have to put lots more effort into building culture and different sorts of practices inside institutions and you know obviously everyone has got their AMP plan in and they're waiting for their access and participation plan to be signed off and come back and some are ping-ponging back with OFS but but that's a kind of institutional level autonomy and there is a danger that some institutions play their figures by having some departments or some courses or, so, or you know bits of their institution that are you know very much closing the gap whilst others aren't addressed and you know 
know, I'll give you an example. It is really, really hard to get stats on that whether or not there is a black attainment gap, for example, in med and in law nationally. And unless we tackle those sorts of things, we're not going to have black people inside the professions. So that thing about making sure that in a, in a, in, in a rightfully distributed leadership model, we put significant effort into making sure these conversations are happening in all pockets of an institution, I think is really important. Yeah. I've been doing some work with the NHS locally in Yorkshire, and we are running communities of practice um, around uh, BAME attainment and um, disabled people in the BAME communities attainment. And we're bringing lots of people together from across the organisation, not just at the top, um, but th- there's a lot of work to be done, and it has to be done collectively. It can't be done tokenistically or just as a, as a leadership initiative. Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Hello and welcome back to Yes But Does It Correlate, the most statistically significant part of the Wonky Show. This week, like many, my attention has been on the way the UK HE sector interacts with the European Union. I have data for the number of non-UK EU students in the sector and the amount of EU government research funding for institutions. Can I use one to predict the other? Does it correlate? Yeah, I just think, uh, I, I don't think it correlates because I don't think the number of EU students in a, across the institution will um, will correlate with the Horizon 2020 because it doesn't mean that if you're successful in getting that funding necessarily that you have loads of EU students. Uh, I, I think there's a really strong correlation. I have no doubt that uh, EU students are coming to the UK in order to benefit from that funding very proudly. There is a moderate correlation. R squared is 0.46. As you might expect, providers that do a lot of non-research, council-funded research, tend to do a lot of EU research, and tend to have more students, and thus more EU students. In this instance, there is a correlation, but there's not really a clear causation. I've also plotted the annual change for each number. There we see no correlation, but it's still a fascinating graph of the EU-related winners and losers in the sector. Data is from HISA, and where data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, for some of you it will be all over, and for some it will have just begun. Yes, September is the month of Freshers' Week, or even Freshers' Fortnight. However, as the diversity of the student body has evolved to a place of almost hyper-diversity, questions are being asked as to whether the tradition needs to change. Jim, as you have been part of, I think, about 384 Freshers' Weeks, um, why don't you kick us off on this one? Hey, hey, fellow Rocky. Um, uh, on Sunday, the star ran Freshers' Week carnage as filthy don't-tell-daddy uni babes run riot. And uh, obviously, me being me, I decided to reverse image search all of the photos that the star had put into this uh, story. <laughs> None of them were from this year, which is extraordinary. Some of them weren't even a freshers. They were of kind of, you know, bank holiday, revelry. There's a bit of the press and a bit of society that has a view of freshers, and the word doesn't help, which is, you know, the kind of mid-90s, loaded lad, phalaraki, people are, you know, very drunk and in states of undress and vomiting and urinating and so on and so on. Um, and interestingly, you know, there, there is still plenty of that, not, not really as a result of what students unions or universities are doing. But, you know, you've got to remember there are nightclubs and, you know, pubs and clubs in, in all the big cities that are desperate to get student trade and, you know, get people drinking and all of that sort of stuff. But what's obviously starting to happen as campuses become more diverse is more people that are teetotal. And what's what we're starting to see in the data, you know, we did a bit of this and there's plenty in the Unite stuff from this week 
what we're starting to see is a whole bunch of students for whom pretty obviously if you think about it that 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 kind of throw in at the deep end thing doesn't work uh, and is actually potentially quite harmful and i guess you know as well as the thing about trying to spread out the the, the kind of intensity of freshers week across the course of a first year and i wrote on that i wrote about that on the site a few weeks ago the other thing i'd say is if if there are certain types of student uh, you know and certain student characteristics or certain courses or whatever that are more that are less likely to respond well to the in at the deep end thing then you have to target your interventions at those groups because with all the will in the world however loud the music is up at at, at your freshers fair or whatever you're doing in those introductory lectures if there's a group of students for whom this really doesn't work you have to target the interventions and you know lots of students unions and universities are doing much more diverse much more interesting kind of freshers and induction programs but there is still a sense that it's kind of everyone in the deep end everyone uh, just go to as much as you can uh, you end up spending lots of money and i'm not sure that we've yet reached that point where we've really identified the people who are getting n- not only nothing out of this but negativity out of, of the, out of this approach and then targeted them and i guess you know jenny may will come on to this i, I think that thing about a whole bunch of students not going to their freshers fair and then a whole bunch of students saying i missed the chance to join a society and now i feel like i'm not going to have any friends all year is 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 the example of where we need to work harder on targeting well jenny is that true let's bring you in on this um yeah (laughs) uh yeah i mean i think the headline for us was well it's a it's a kind of a solid okay uh with students six uh, six and a half out of ten uh, was the average score for how great it was, um, and it is working better for some students than others. And and actually, I think the most interesting data we've got on this is actually some students talking about responding to our data and talking about their experiences of Freshers' Week. Um, it, lots of things they say. It, I mean, they 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 talk about it with a a bit of a wry laugh actually, and we heard that in in all the qualitative research. Oh yeah, Freshers' Week. Um, but they say things like. Well, you know, we were told it was going to be the best week of our life um, and, and, and nothing can live up to that. So why did we think that was true? And, and inevitably, we were disappointed. Um, we were seeing yeah, differences uh, between what applicants expected and what students actually got in terms of certainly the social side. So it wasn't quite um, the social experience that they had expected it to be. Um, it, it, is, it is working better for some than others. So... We got um, uh, quite a lot of hints in in the student conversation about, well, it's kind of optimised for um, extroverts who like to drink a lot, uh, like to like to get off with lots of people. um, And not everyone wants to do that or can do that or chooses to do that. Um, And, you know, there are other things on for other people, but they're a little bit, oh, here's the here's the diverse stuff for you rather than it being something that feels inclusive. Uh, But the most striking thing for me was that um, they said no one told us what it was for. Um, And I thought, well, is that not obvious? But but it isn't really. So it it was sold to them as here's a big party. We're all going to have a great time and be social all the time. Um, It wasn't, oh, yeah, you've got to settle in. You've got to to find your feet, find your way around, get your friends, because actually that's really going to help you for the rest of the year. Um, They had to kind of work that out for themselves after the fact. So there's something there about how um, it is positioned to them. Um, and they have, we've got them on uh, our website on a, an audio recording just talking about it. And they've got loads of, of really good suggestions about how it can be improved. Um, and one of them said, well, you know, if you're starting a new job, you wouldn't think that was going to be the best 
weep of your life, would you? You'd, you'd know that it was gonna, <laughs> which is so true. You know it was going to be a bit awkward, um, and you weren't going to know people, and you're going to have to you know do the work in that first week to, to get to know people and find your way around and but you accept that because you know that's part of what you've got to do and mm. um and they'd said you know well if it was if it was a bit more like that then we'd know what we were getting into mm. and we wouldn't be disappointed and you wouldn't onboard someone to a job just over a week would you that'd be a, a few no and you wouldn't give them that much alcohol either probably. well i mean sure <laughs> depending on the job <laughs> depending on the job um it feels like a very existential question what is freshest week pete what is what is freshest week well, it was acceptable in the 90s, maybe, but I don't even know what Freshers' Week is. Uh, I think you call it welcome in an orientation week, and it's you know it should be how to navigate around the university physically. I mean, did, did, you know you've seen the um, is it what's the Maslow's hierarchy of need, and basically what you need to do is add a couple of slots to that and put on um, you know charging for devices and then Wi-Fi, and then people need to orientate where they eat, where they sleep, what they're going to do. But I, I really do think the the idea that you know you just come and get smashed and then come out of a haze and then get going is is really outdated. Um, but I, I know that that's a, an outdated concept in most universities that I've had. Um, you know, work with recently or, or in the past when we put an awful lot of effort into ensuring that diverse uh, range of students got, um, you know, onboarded or whatever term you want to, to call it now, you know, welcomed to the community uh, in a good way. And and they're really not interested in massive drinking events. I mean, I'm sure Jenny's data shows that, but that's something we've known for a while. Board game nights were much more interesting to people where they could actually talk and interact and meet with each other. Um, but I think the departments as well, and, and what we didn't touch on early in the conversation about mental health was embedding well-being into the curriculum. And I think embedding uh, a sense of what you're meant to do what successful students do and how you can mirror that uh, is an important way of, of kind of getting people to start to orientate. But Freshers' Week now begins, or Welcome Week begins way before they arrive, you know, with lots of social media interaction, lots of uh, kind of hints and tips. But it's, it's making sure that they're engaging and worthwhile. And people are wondering why they're waiting for a week before they can get going on studying. And, you know, what, why aren't they straight in at the deep end in terms of their study why is it the social side of things that, that they're meant to be in at the deep end at so some great examples around the sector and i'm sure uh, the jenny's um, output will highlight that but i think we should really be sharing you know what's working uh, in a collaborative way yeah i mean just to say quickly it is absolutely true that there's a hell of a lot of students unions that really depend on commercial income during that first week and, you know, I, I guess there might be some institutional actors uh, listening, thinking, oh, this is very well, but my student's union has done blah, 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 blah. And if you look at the way they're funded, if they're depending on getting people really, really drunk in that first week and selling them wristbands and things, there are ways to fix that. Yeah. And it's not just about finger wagging. It's about funding them properly to be able to depend less on that uh, money. But I guess the other thing that I would say is... You know, I think lots of the traditions around Freshers' Week are, lo are are located in a past that has gone, which is about much smaller campuses and much less diverse student bodies. And whether you look at this through the eyes of a commuter student or a student that's first in their family or a student... Actually, I mean, there are some students that, that, that you know, some people would call, you know, normal students. And what they really mean is white, middle class, on-campus students that won't have encountered the kind of diversity that's on campus these days. And I guess one of the things I'd encourage lots of people to do is if you look at this through student eyes and you say to yourself... By the end of that week, will they have been facilitated to have some meaningful, relatively quiet conversations where they can start to build belonging and social bonds? 
If the answer to that question is no, then there's lots of things that people can do, both within academic departments, uh, within kind of social programmes and within uh, student support departments. So that is about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com and where you can also leave your thoughts and comments on today's podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got great takes to get guests on the show, please do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So huge thanks to our guests, Jenny, Pete and Jim, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen and of course to you for listening right to the end. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.